0: Hey there, and welcome to Sex in the Sacred, where history, religion, and sexuality collide. I'm your host, Anna Zuckerman, and today, I'm here to tell you about a fascinating but often overlooked tribe from early South America. I'll take you through medieval Peru, where textile production, religious ritual, and sex all merged together, resulting in an archaeological treasure trove of kinky, erotic pottery. You're listening to Sex in the Sacred, and today... We're talking about mochi sex sexpots. So before I get too far into this material, I'll take a second to establish what we're talking about. The word mochi has risen to prominence in the U.S. as a result of the trending ice cream dessert. Despite being a great snack when you're craving something sweet, this is not the kind of mochi we're talking about today. When I use the term mochi, I'm referring to the M-O-C-H-E mochi, the Peruvian indigenous tribe from late antiquity that had no connection whatsoever to Japanese desserts. In a second preface to you all, I should tell you that today's episode will use some explicit descriptions of erotic pottery. Please listen or mute, censor, or pause accordingly. Okay. Okay. Cool, now that that's done, let's dig in. Let's start with some basics. The Mochi people lived and ruled in what is now Peru from about 100 to 700 CE. For an advanced civilization, this is a fairly short timeframe. We still don't know exactly what triggered their collapse, but luckily we do know a little bit about their culture. The Mochi lived across a little more than 250 miles of land and were organized into a series of urban centers. While this is not uncommon for South American civilizations, the Mochi are interesting because they had no central government, no one king or priest or chief that ruled over the other cities. Each urban center was ruled by its own leader, but engaged in trade and shared a culture with the other Mochi cities. We know about the mochi as a result of two things, their temples and their textiles. Let's start with temples. The two greatest mochi temples are respectively referred to by modern scholars as the Temple of the Sun and the Temple of the Moon. We don't know very much about what the Temple of the Sun was like in its heyday, because centuries after the mochi's collapse, Spanish conquistadors looted the temple and removed all of the artifacts inside it. However, Through ongoing excavations of the Temple of the Moon, archaeologists are beginning to get an idea for what Mochi faith was like. Let's get into it a little more. The larger temple, the Temple of the Sun, is thought to have served both religious and administrative purposes. It's hard to tell when exactly it was built, because there is archaeological evidence suggesting that a great many Mochi rulers contributed to its construction. If you put an addition onto your house, is the house completed only when you're done, or does the addition not count? Anyway, this also makes it difficult to determine who built the temple. We know that the basic structure was completed by 450 CE. Anything beyond that is hard to confirm. It's fairly likely that we'll never really know much about this temple. When I mentioned the conquistadors, I forgot to tell you that they rerouted a river to make the looting easier. This caused so much damage to the building that less than half of the original structure survives to this day. The Temple of the Moon, thank goodness, avoided this fate and survived to offer us more information. The building, used solely for religious and burial purposes, has given scholars some of the most important artifacts that we've used to learn about Mochi faith. The Adobe building has proven to be a veritable treasure trove of knowledge and a treasure trove of mysteries. So you may well ask now, we know there are temples, but what about the religion itself? What was that like? Well, I'll tell you what we know. And just as a heads up, it's not all that much. There are two figures that dominate mochi art. Wall murals, burial art, and erotic pottery found within the temples all depict these two beings. The first, whom we normally refer to as wrinkle face, seems to represent a supernatural presence. We don't know whether he is a god, a spirit, or even an anthropomorphized concept. What we do know is that he is everywhere in mochi art. He earns his name from his lined and wrinkled face, which is accompanied by large fangs, a feathered headdress topped with a fox head, and a long belt looking like snakes with a fox head at each end. Wrinkleface is often associated, in the mind of modern scholars, with death and burial. He's usually depicted with this second figure, who we can reasonably believe is his assistant. Iguana, as we call him, is, well, an anthropomorphized iguana. He wears a fancy headdress like Wrinkleface, which includes a bird head instead of a fox. Here's what I do know. Wrinkleface and iguana look like a pretty badass team of spirits, or gods, or demons, or whatever they might be. But here's what I don't know. I don't know what they meant to the mochi people. Nobody does. However, we do know that they are often present in artistic depictions of blood rituals. Cool, right? A number of the paintings found by archaeologists Raphael Larco and Christopher Donnan, who are the leading mochi experts, by the way, depict scenes that after a great deal of examination, seem to depict rituals of human sacrifice. In some of these paintings, it is clear that the sacrificial victims are battle-defeated prisoners. In others, there are no clues to identify why the victims were chosen. In many of these scenes, priests and priestesses hold up an ornate chalice to wrinkle face or a human ruler. In the early 90s, Donan and Luis Castillo unearthed a tomb where they found not only the body of a mochi priestess, but this same chalice, which scholarship has since determined was indeed used in blood sacrifices. As fascinating as this is, however, we don't know why the mochi sacrificed victims. Was it to appease an angry god? To make a political statement across the Andes? to win the favor of destiny or protect the cities. We may never know. Okay, let's move on the textiles. This is what the Mochi are known for. In fact, it's what they were known for in their day too. Their incredible woven fabrics were traded across the region and although few fragments survive today, we know that they used a variety of dyes and distinctly coastal weaving techniques later adopted by the Wari people the mochi had a thriving artisanal culture and identifiable figures told stories in the threads of their tapestries, clothing, and accessories. However, while mochi weavers were the earliest of artisans in their cities, there is one textile that made the mochi notorious in history, their pottery. The distinct mochi jug, identified by its curved handle and protruding spout, was well known throughout the Andes and is infamous today. Of course, Much of this notoriety is due not to the shape of their pots, but the artwork. And this artwork, my friends, is what you're here for today. These are the mochi sex pots. The scenes depicted on these pots are not designed with subtlety in mind. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The figures engaged in copulation are carefully carved to show all of their genital regions. They appear in a myriad of positions, and without putting too fine a point on it, look remarkably like modern people in the act. History has a tendency to veil the less graceful scenes of intimacy from the modern eye. These artifacts, however, do not. The clay pots depict several actions with much regularity. The vast majority of mochi sex pots show two figures engaged in either anal sex or fellatio. The figures are often human, but may also be skeletal, animalistic, or a mix of the three. Female participants are normally depicted as human. It is her partner that may change form. In many of the pots portraying anal sex, much care is taken in the carving to ensure that the viewer has no question whether this encounter is vaginal or anal. Interestingly, we know that this is more than an artist's attention to detail, because vaginal sex is extremely rare in these vessels. Remember Wrinkleface, the deity, spirit, unconfirmed being that appeared in temple art? Well, he is the most common figure present in scenes depicting this kind of sex. Almost all examples of vaginal copulation in mochi art depict Wrinkleface as a male partner, occasionally attended by his companion iguana. It's fascinating to note here that despite the variety in sexual experiences shown on mochi pottery, Kamalingus is entirely absent. There is little scholarship delving into the reasons behind this choice but it speaks to the argument that these vessels were not simply depicting sex in all its forms in spite of this gap in the artwork other traditionally kinky elements may be present several pots depict the male partner choking the female and mutual masturbation is also widely prevalent as a side note I suppose this is a good time for me to remind you that all of the buildings and artifacts I mention here are also available to view in the show notes at www.sexandthesacred.com. Okay, back to it. It would not be uncommon for erotic pottery to exist in an ancient civilization. In fact, I can't think of any that don't have at least a few artifacts of this kind. However, most erotic pottery is made by hand It is carefully crafted and designed by an artist who knows that their work is in some way unique. But these pots were made with molds. And that, my friends, means that they were popular enough to be mass produced. That is the cool part. That these really quite explicit pots were in high enough demand to warrant traits of industrial production. God, I love this field. At this point, you're probably wondering what in the world sex pots were used for. Surely they couldn't just be decorative, right? Well, as lovely as they would look on an ancient Peruvian coffee table, they did in fact serve a ritual purpose. Probably. There are two main theories regarding the purpose of this erotic pottery, one logistical and one symbolic. Some scholars argued that mochi sex pottery was designed to be informative, even educational. Early mochi historian Raphael Larco argued in 1965 that the works depicted forms of contraceptives. In 1990, Vergara posited that they functioned more closely to the Kama Sutra, an informative and sort of inspirational guide to pleasurable sex. A second, and by this point far larger group of scholars argue instead that mochi sex pottery is far more symbolic in nature. Christopher Donnan has argued this, as has Susan Berg and a number of other Mochi scholars. Their arguments draw from the other Andean civilizations and tend to tie the sexual encounters depicted on Mochi pottery with the agricultural cycle of the region. While I am inclined to agree with the symbolic side of this argument, I am hesitant to subscribe to any one particular interpretation of the symbolism itself. We religious studies scholars may understandably rely on common themes, like fertility of body and earth, the cycle of life and death, and the tendency of religion to regulate morality. But I don't believe that we can accurately claim to know which, if any, of these interpretations is correct. The simple truth is, frustratingly, that we just don't know what these images mean yet. Mochi sex pots drive scholars wild because they raise so many more questions than they answer. We do not yet have an explanation for the diversity of sexual encounters portrayed on the vessels, and yet we need one because they do not portray the entire range of sexual experiences. We do not yet understand what they were used for, and yet we need to understand why they were popular enough to be mass produced. Mochi sex pots offer a refreshing break from a recorded history that projects a very narrow view of what sexuality and intimacy look like. However, we don't know whether these pots are showing us that mochi culture was quite openly sexually progressive, or if there is another explanation entirely. I personally look forward with great anticipation to the day when archaeologists are able to make that breakthrough, and we may finally understand the secrets of the mochi sex pots. I hope and expect that it will tell us a fascinating story that challenges our view of ancient sexuality and forces us to consider the ways in which intimacy and ritual are deeply connected. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned something new about mochi culture. Next time on Sex and the Sacred, I'll be taking you even further back in history to discuss someone you probably have already heard of. The man, the myth, the legend, Gilgamesh. Subscribe now to make sure you don't miss it. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Mochi Sex Pots, or to check out any of the research or publications mentioned today, head to www.sexandthesacred.com where you can find the show notes for this and every episode. Likewise, if you'd like to get in on our super cool Sex on the Sacred t-shirts, mugs, and other merch. Search for Sex in the Sacred on your Redbubble or Patreon pages, where you can find us and help support the show. That's all for now. I'm your host, Anna Zuckerman, and you're listening to Sex in the Sacred, where history, religion, and sexuality collide. Thanks for tuning in with me. I'll see you next time.